WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. And we've got some huge news this week. First off, Matt Lazowitz and I will be hosting a live panel at Camden Comic Con, which is April 27th at the Rutgers University campus in Camden, New Jersey. It's a free show, which is awesome, and we're going to be talking with special guest Jerry Conway. That's right, Jerry Conway, the guy who wrote The Death of Gwen Stacy, co-created The Punisher, and Firestorm. We're going to be talking to him! Uh, There are also going to be some other great guests at the show, like Larry Hama, Mike Manley, and Mark McKenna. We are super excited, and if you live in South Jersey or Philly, or the greater area thereabouts, please come check out the show. Uh, But wait, there's more! We've got a new regular feature debuting this week. Uh, you've heard him on WMQ&A. Now, friend of the site, Will Nevin, is bringing his Wednesday Warriors column to WMQ Comics. Will does reviews, he makes his picks for the week, and he pairs it all with a tasty bourbon, as is his brand. Uh, we are extremely fortunate to have Will, so please look for his column this week and gorge at the trough of his comics wisdom. Uh, anyway, we have guests, new and amazing guests. This week we're talking with Ivy Noel Weir, and Christina Steens Stewart, the writer and artist behind Archival Quality, an Oni Press graphic novel that just won the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics. Uh, we talk about that book, we talk about the importance of libraries in spreading the gospel of comics, and we talk about the comic scenes in Ivy and Steens' respective home bases of Philadelphia and St. Louis. Uh, we also talk about those two great pillars of the fandom, Cyclops and Gritty. So let's dive right into it. Uh, here are me and Matt and Ivy and Steens. Uh, so first of all, congrats on uh, the McDuffie Award win. Uh, do you remember, you know, what you guys were, were doing when you received the news that you'd won? Yeah, I do. I was um, at work and <laughs> I got the email and um, I'm pretty sure I like dropped my mouse because I was like holding it and then I, I think I like crushed it a little and then dropped it and then I was like oh my god I need to I need to tell Ivy and then I started texting Ivy like over and over and over and over again but she was in a meeting and so I'm pretty <laughs> sure she came out of that meeting with like 30 texts <laughs> um, but yeah that was pretty much what I was doing just working <laughs> nothing exciting <laughs> yeah I mean Steen's um Steens gets all things some amount of time before me. We've determined that she receives any packages we're both about to receive one day exactly before I will. Uh, and it is the same with good news. She will always get it first. You <laughs> have to tell me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when I, yeah, when I found out that we won, I also got that first. <laughs> and yes, you did. <laughs> you called me. And you never call me. And so when Steens calls me, I assume that either she's butt dialing me or something exciting has happened. Right. <laughs> you, you walk out of the meeting, your phone's just lit up with Ivy, 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 Ivy. Yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, did you, did either of you get to attend? There's a, there's a ceremony, right? At Long Beach. There is a ceremony, but no. So they reached out to us two weeks before the ceremony, letting us know that we were finalists. Mm-hmm. And um, Plenty of notice. <laughs> I, I am not rich. Uh, so I couldn't afford going. I also already spent a lot of money on tickets to see one of my favorite K-pop uh, bands. So I was actually in Chicago at the concert when I found out that I won. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we tried. We tried to pull it together for me to go, actually. Um, but then we decided that if we won, we were going to take a vacation together and utilize that money uh, to do that. Nice. So I guess we have to plan That's a great. vacation. <laughs> I'm so excited. I've, I've already started looking up hotels. I just need Ivan to say go, and I'll, like, put it together. <laughs> Anywhere in particular you're looking or just somewhere new and different? So we want to go to Los Angeles because Steens and I are both really obsessed with the television program Vanderpump Rules, a uh, okay. spinoff of the uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um, and uh, one of the Real Housewives owns several restaurants in L.A. And we have uh, we've been dying to go, even though I'm sure they're all really bad. We've just been dying to go. I'm sure they're terrible restaurants, but also great at the same time because we've idolized them for so long. <laughs> so our goal is to to get a hotel there, go to all what four of her restaurants. <laughs> so at least uh, a restaurant per meal, and uh, Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like the B movies of restaurants. Yeah. There, one of them is named Sir, and I kid you not, hand to God, that stands for sexy, unique restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the one we're most obsessed with. So, so I'm not. I, I admit to being, you know, not familiar with this. Are they all like different themes? It's not like a chain, right? It's not like you know. No, they're, they're all different. different. Okay. So Sir is obviously sexy and unique. <laughs> But I think La Villa Blanca is just like fancy mansion, but as a restaurant. So like lots of flowers and random waterfalls and and then Pump is their gay bar. And then Tom Tom. Tom Tom. So Tom Tom is their most recent restaurant and the like faces of the restaurant are for two of the characters from the show. Tom Sandoval and uh, Tom Schwartz. And and we love them. And we love them a lot. Tom Sandoval is actually from St. Louis, so I've actually oh. met him. So I'm Tom Sandoval, and Ivy is Tom Schwartz, and we need to go there. And I feel like we might, like, ascend or something. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's going to be a good time. <laughs> Sounds marvelous, and I love I love when we're able to discuss things on the podcast that neither Dan nor I are familiar with. <laughs> our guests are, and we're assuming that we have no idea whether our audience is or not. I guarantee you, somebody in your audience watches Vanderpump Rules, and they don't want to admit that they do, and maybe now <laughs> they'll feel comfortable admitting that Vanderpump Rules is the greatest television program in the history of humanity. <laughs> We're yeah. all about so, inclusivity like, here. So. <laughs> you have a lot of like specific interests that have nothing to do with comics, and I think that's what brings our relationship together the most. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is beautiful. Um, so, just a quick kind of catch up our listeners who may not be familiar. Uh, Archival Quality is about uh, a young woman who is dealing with some mental health issues, loses her job at the library. She finds a new job at a medical museum, uh, working overnights, archiving, and she begins experiencing uh, visions of a young woman who was a patient back when the museum was a sanitarium. Uh, it is really great, and you should read it, uh, listeners. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
you know, I was kind of curious because I read uh, the afterword that that Ivy wrote. You know, uh, Steens, do you remember kind of getting that? You know, being Ivy kind of reaching out to you. You know, asking. You know, at that point, you guys didn't really know each other. Like, hey, you want to draw this thing I've been working on? Like, yeah, I, I do. So at the time, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life because my comic shop was closing down. That I I was a manager there for like four years, mm. and I was like, well, I guess I'll die. <laughs> But um, and I had reached out to, to Ivy because I knew she had made the jump from comics retail to librarianship. And I like called her up and I was like, you know, homie, what's the deal? How does this work? Should I do it? And um, so while we were like beginning our, our friendship, it was around that time. And I remember it was like it was one of those days where I was just like, I'm having a really hard time finding a job. This is really stressful. And then I was like, well, what about let's do a webcomic? And I was like, this is perfect timing because like I wanted to do some um, long form comicing before, but I suck at writing and I don't ever want to be good at it because that would mean that I'd have to try. Um, so I was like, this is perfect. Now I have a writer. I can do things. <laughs> um, but it was just kind of like even though I may be living the job of like my dreams at the time, I, at least I have this cool thing to look forward to. I'm like starting a web comic. Eventually we never started that web comic because it turned into archival quality, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a good time. I was like telling all my friends, like take a look at this story. It's the shit and I'm going to draw it and you should be excited about it. Um. You know, that, that is one the story went through, you know, a few permutations before it, it found a home at Oni uh, as an OGN, you know, started as a novella. Um, you know, I, Ivy, was there ever a point where, you know, the script was, was in a drawer and, you know, you thought you were walking away from it for good? Uh, yeah, um, I think I actually cut this part from the afterward. I know it was in the original draft I had sent our editor, but... Um, so I wrote the novella when I was in undergrad um, and I was trying to, I was kind of in a similar position to what Steen's just described. Um, I was in art school at Parsons School for Design in New York and uh, I ended up leaving and I was kind of like, I don't really know what I want to do. I don't want to be a studio artist. Um you know, I had been in the New York art world for like a couple years and I was like really exhausted. Um, and so I worked on the story, this ghost story, and I, um, I was like, this is good. Like I had always, I've always written, um, I've always written fiction ever since I could write it all. Um, and so I was like, I feel like this is something that is good. And so I'm going to submit it to the Clarion Writers Workshop, at which uh, Neil Gaiman is the teacher this year. And I was very much rejected. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I'm not a writer. And I guess I'll die, to <laughs> borrow Steen's phrase. Um, <laughs> so I believe in the original draft of the afterward, I sent our uh, editor, I said something like, so yeah, suck it, Neil Gaiman. He's published now. <laughs> um, but it's not his fault. It's not his fault. I don't think he even looked at those looked at those applications. <laughs> but um, 
there was definitely, that was the moment where I was like, this is going nowhere and I need to like reassess my priorities and why did I think I could be a writer? And then about two years after that is when I met Steens. Um, once I saw her art, I was like, I want to do something with this person, but I'm so tired and college has completely broken me at this point. And like, I had been going through a lot personally. Um, and so I was like, well, what could I even bring to the table that she might want to work on with me? And I was like, oh yeah, that uh, crappy ghost story that Neil Gaiman hated. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so I pulled it out and I kind of revisited it and reworked it. Um, and that was eventually what we, we came to as archival quality. Um, there was, there was a, there was a bit in the, in the back matter where it shows like how many kind of like the one scene where I think, you know, you can see, uh, the both of you, uh, kind of at the counter at the diner and how that had morphed over, over time. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a few, there's, there's so many good moments in there. I think, you know, one of my favorites is like very kind of right at the beginning, you know, we're, we're describing Celeste's, you know, what, what Celeste has been going through and this whole idea of, you know, her, her kind of the state of her mental health as, as being like a, a seawall along the shore and see, being able to see the lines and like knowing that it's going to come back. Um, I don't really have a follow-up question to that. I just wanted to say, just wanted to say that I really liked it. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Actually, that image is something that carried from the first draft of that novella to the next, to what I sent scenes to this comic, and it felt very accurate to me mm -hmm. um, as, as my lived experience. And so mm -hmm. it, it's always meaningful to hear that these things have resonated with people. Also, it's cool, you know, you talk about the backbiter of us in the, in the, in the diner. So I, it's, I, oh my gosh, I've drawn that scene so many times. I don't ever want to do that again. Uh, <laughs> but. Just I, like no more diner scenes ever or just. <laughs> <laughs> drawing the same scene several times over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, so like the first time I did it, it was for the webcomic. And then when we were like let's send this in to Oni, what's the worst that could happen? We, um, I was like, well, if we're gonna send it to Oni, I'm gonna have to redo this. Cause this, this is like webcomic level. If I'm gonna send something to a publisher, I wanna redo these pages. So I redid it. And then when we got in, Robin was like, this is great. Here's your template. And I was like, oh God, I have to redo this page. <laughs> so it's like, it was uh, aggravating, but also I learned a lot from it. I learned um, what looks right, what doesn't look right. Uh, I ended up, um, I don't know, it's, it's a good way to, to show people that you do get better at drawing, um, even if you don't think you're getting better at it. You know, like, how, I mean, how long were we working on it? So, like, from the original time I drew that page in, like, February of 2015... So when I finally drew the page and colored it in like 2017, maybe mm -hmm. end of 2017, because I had to work backwards. Um, like that's what, two and a half years yeah. of, of drawing. And it's like, 
wild to look back on my work from two and a half years ago and be like, holy shit, how did we get picked up? But also, like, <laughs> that's so cool, though, for creators to see that, you know, like, it's it's not a, it's a daily slog, but it, it does make a difference for sure. Um, how long was, was the wait between, you know, submitting and, and, and hearing back from Oni? About 10 years, it felt like. Yeah, 1,000 <laughs> years. Um, gosh, okay, so we sent it, when did we send it? April? We sent it, I'm trying to remember where I was living at the time, because I move a lot. So I was like, that's my metric. Um, yeah, I think we sent it in the spring, like early spring. And honestly, I think we heard back very quickly. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> But we also, this was like the first time we had ever pitched anything. Yeah. So like any amount of time is like, it's forever. We're never going to hear back. Um, what actually took longer was after we heard back and like going through the contracting phase, that took longer than the time for us to get picked up. Mm, so Okay. And I think that's typically how it works. Uh, especially, well, like, so I'm an editor at Lionforge and that's, I mean, I can see a pitch and be like, yeah, I'll take it to acquisitions within like two months of talking to them and going back and forth on, on changes or whatever, before I take it to the team. But when it comes to actual like contracting, oh my God, it takes forever. Especially if your agent is, your agent's going to be like, well, hold on now. <laughs> Let's make sure this person gets every bit of money. So yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. But and. In the grand scheme of things, it was relatively quick, though. Because, I mean, archival quality is, what, 300 pages almost? So that's a, that's a lot of comic to do in that period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have to ask, Ivy, as I started reading the book, even without looking at your bio, I immediately figured you had some familiarity with Philly because – the setting of the book reminds me of one of my favorite Philly oddities, the Mutter Museum. Yes. Uh, how much time have you spent at the Mutter? Uh, I used to work there. Ah, that explains it. <laughs> so a good amount of time. Yes. Um, so I was, um, I was an archive uh, intern there um, when I was in undergrad uh, for a little less than a year. Um, so I was in that building twice a week every week for like eight months um and it's funny because i actually ended up almost working there again a couple of years ago um in their development office um so i'm very familiar with it i've been going there my whole life i'm philly uh born and raised so i uh i'm well acquainted with the muter it was uh everyone's favorite gross field trip <laughs> well Howdy, neighbor. I live right. I can see the Betsy Ross from my house. Oh, or all I right. could if there weren't a block of another block of houses. But yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yep. So the meter is like to me. This just I don't know. I mean, I, scenes can tell you that I'm very proud to be from the great city of Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so the meter to me is this like really uniquely Philly thing because it's kind of horrible <laughs> but it's also great yeah. and like really unique and like 
you bring people who aren't from here to it and they're like, why am I here? Like, to me, that just, like, is the encapsulation of, of Philadelphia. You know, I, I have to say, I remain to this day borderline jealous that my wife's ex-boyfriend set it up that their first date was at the Muter. And I was oh like, God. damn, that was a really good good first date idea I I, 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 I I don't know if I could have pulled that one off but that was a good <laughs> play <laughs> I, I actually went and, and visited Ivy in Philadelphia in I don't remember when it was cold but um, <laughs> yeah it was I, I, I don't even know how far I was into the book but it definitely helped with the feeling of archival quality having actually been in the museum you know and i took a lot of pictures and we spent a good amount of time in there um but it's also interesting that like so any place that's like in archival quality that's outside of the museum is based off of a place in st louis so <laughs> this this uh this city does not exist <laughs> it's a, a fake st louis philadelphia hybrid yeah um, <laughs> But I mean, it's also, it's based on a, so my undergrad studies were pretty much in um, historic medical photography, the ethics and aesthetics thereof. Um, and so, you know, the muter obviously being from Philly and having the connection I had to is very near and dear to my heart, but it's also, it takes a lot from the pharmacy museum in New Orleans, um, which is incredible. Um, and, you know, the, there's another, um, the Wagner Free Institute of Science in Philly, um, which is up near Temple, um, is also like just a really cool old science museum, the Harvard Natural History Museum, you know, all these like really old science museums because, you know, they pose, I think the muter actually is among them, it's incredibly ethical the way it's run. They're, they're extremely concerned with ethics. Um, and, you know, very focused on education and really against fetishizing the subjects therein. So, you know, I, I would hate for anyone to read this book and be like, the meter is probably harboring a bunch of grave robbed artifacts that are haunted. Um, a shadow council is selling teeth for money. <laughs> you know, the no, meter no. is actually very, very ethical, um, as are most of these museums these days, but they came from this, this history of, you know, these freak shows and oddities and like, you know, these, uh, medical traveling medical road shows that used to go, go around and like display weird skulls. Um, it's a really fascinating history to me. Um, and one with a lot to uh, kind of unpack ethically. Yeah, no, if you, you, you yeah, I, I love Philly and it's, collection of odd museums it's just wonderful and we have gritty so yeah, oh, okay so i was gonna save this question for later because I, I did have more philadelphia stuff but since we're bringing up our orange overlord uh so the phillies just signed bryce harper for 330 million dollars I am a little worried that that is going to shift some of the focus. People are going to start looking at Bryce Harper as the cure for Philadelphia when we already have him, <laughs> our uh, true Lord and Savior, Gritty. <laughs> I know. Whereas, you know, I don't feel like we can do anything with our sports teams that has any more value than Gritty. And I include our winning the Super Bowl last year in that. <laughs> so I was at that riot. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's fine. It, it just came out that I think Nick Foles is going to Jacksonville, and uh, I don't know if you guys are all familiar with The Good Place at all. Mm. Okay. Well, there's one character on that show who's obsessed, who's from Jacksonville, is obsessed with their quarterback, Blake Bortles, and will yell his name out uh, in, you know, at inappropriate times, and I just don't feel like Foles has the same ring to it, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Um, you know, one of the other big the themes in uh, archival quality is the importance of libraries. And, you know, Celeste is devastated when she loses her job in the beginning at the library. Uh, you know, uh, I just read a piece uh, on the MNT where, uh, Steen, you talk about the importance of getting uh, LGBTQ-friendly graphic novels into libraries and how libraries can learn from comic shops when it comes to acquiring materials. Um, you know, uh, I am, you know, I'm curious how formative libraries have been to your respective uh, you know, comics reading over the years? Um, so I actually read my first comic in a library. Um, I just moved to St. Louis, so I was like 10 years old, didn't really know anybody, and my mom had to work a lot, and we just didn't really have a whole lot to do. So me and my twin sister, whose name is Celeste, actually. Um, I, d I didn't know that when I wrote yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we would always be dropped off at the library. So we spent like all day during the summer at the University City Public Library, which was great. It was it was awesome. I remember they had this uh, clothlet tub that they filled with like uh, like a mattress pad and like um, some form of uh, fitting over it. So it was just kind of like a bed, but inside of a clothlet tub, and I would just sit there and read comics all day long. Wow. Uh, so my, I mean, I would read quite the variety from everything from, from manga to uh, Louis Trondheim to Death, The High Cost of Living, Justice Society. I mean, pretty much anything that I could get my hands on. Um, and that kind of was just something I'd always been interested in just because my family is just very nerdy. You know, my dad has always been into comics and he played D&D &D, and my mom is a huge Trekkie and we would watch like anime and uh Toonami all together like as a family at dinner time growing up so like I'm my whole family is very much steeped into the fandom culture um but you know we also didn't have a lot of money so oftentimes that's where I got my entertainment was whatever came on tv and whatever I could get my hands on at the library um, and it was not just when I was younger, but also when I was in and out of college as well. And, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I would just spend most of my days at the library, getting caught up on many, many years of back history for DC and Marvel superhero comics and, um, getting into the Sandman universe um, so when I had the opportunity to actually work at a library, I was like, this is going to be the best thing ever. And I ended up working in the entertainment and literature and biography section, which you're like, probably like, oh, well, that has nothing to do with comics. Uh, -huh. but not exactly. I actually made sure that that room had a robust graphic novel memoir section, just because they do have a that's where they go. You know, a biography is a biography, no matter the format. And um, I also started there 
uh, with the help of others, uh, their zine collection there, because that's also a part of entertainment. So uh, I definitely brought comics wherever I went, wherever I worked. And uh, a lot of it has to do with having having a library as a part of my life growing up. I mean, for me, I kind of, there was no not getting into comics in my, my house, uh, kind of <laughs> similarly to Steen's. My mom was a big comic reader. She made her own comics. She was a big part of the Philly art scene um, when I was young. And so she and a lot of her artistic collaborators would make zines and comics and she read Love and Rockets and like Worship Jaime Hernandez. And so, um, you know, it was just always part of my life. And like a lot of people my age, kind of my gateways into reading comics serially were uh, Archie Comics and manga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, Archie Double Digests. I had like a Tupperware container so full of them. I only got rid of it like when I moved out to go to college. Um And, you know, I read a lot of single issues. My mom really loved the X-Men, so it was a huge part of my life. And my relationship with the library was almost like a boomerang effect. Like, that was where I went to get, like, book books. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I definitely was kind of given free reign. And without a library, I don't think I would have read as broadly as I did or turned into the weirdo that I am now. (laughs) Um, But... You know, and then when libraries became my career, I actually have my master's in library science. Um, When libraries became my career, I wanted to make a kind of accepting and approachable space for teenagers in particular. And with the popularity of like the MCU and like, you know, all the comic book shows and media and the way that it's really permeated pop culture, I thought that the easiest way to get kids in the door was to get them reading comics. Um, Library where I worked really didn't have much of a comic collection. um, And I ended up taking that on. And by the time that I left uh, that library for my job now, I work in publishing. We had, I think, the largest collection in our county system, um, if not the largest, then the second largest, because the main branch could buy a lot more manga <laughs> than I could. But, um, you know, and, and I really tried to make it a space where kids like Steens describes herself as a young person could go and discover, you know, like a wide variety of things they wanted to read. Um, you know, not just superhero comics or not just manga or something that combines them both or something that's nothing like, you know anything that they think they like uh, based on their preconceived notions. So, you know, I was really proud of the work I did with it. And I think that libraries are kind of undervalued in the comic scene. I think that's changing. Um, But comic shop culture requires a pretty high fee for entry Mm -hmm. um, monetarily. And so, you know, the biggest way you're going to hook a new reader is to give them something for free. Um, and the library is doing that. I think that comic publishers would be smart to improve and uh, explore library marketing. I, I mean, I completely agree. I wouldn't have even started purchasing comics if I hadn't already read them for free. You yeah. know, I um 
even when I started reading single issue comics, I went with a friend because he could afford them. I could not. <laughs> so, you know, I would say we should read this, this and this. And he's like, that's what we're reading. And so we would share. But I was just like, I'm not going to be able to afford that. Like, I, there's just no way. And there's plenty of people out there that feel the same exact way, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um well, especially when it be- comes to diversifying comics readership, you know, a lot of the kids that I was um, working with were from low-income families. They were often, you know, kids of color, and they didn't have access to a comic shop because the closest one was 15 miles away, mm-hmm. um, you know, and our library was walking distance from their house. Um, where they were often, you know, watching a younger sibling and brought them to the library. Um, So it was able to open up, like, just a much broader readership, too, than just people who have, you know, access to a car, disposable income to buy single issues, you know, and the the lack of anxiety about walking into a shop where you might not know what you're looking for. Also, I didn't even, like consider comic shops as a thing like when i was younger i mean so i i watched a shit ton of the simpsons so i knew who the comic book guy was and that was like the most i ever considered about comic book shops just because like it just wasn't a part of my life so it was i just like had a, a blinder set where in my mind they didn't exist you know i i only know now where comic shops are in Detroit. That's where I grew up. And I've been watching comic book shows and reading comics for years, but have no idea where I could find a comic shop in Detroit when I was younger. Because it just, it just didn't exist to me. I didn't know anyone else that looked like me that read comics. Um, so the idea of, of going to a place to get them was like, it was just unknown. You know, how about, how, you know, you guys are, are both in the Valkyries, uh, you know, is the situation different in, in St. Louis? Like, what is, what is the kind of, what is the comics culture in St. Louis? Oh, my God. We have so many comic shops here. It's insane. Like, the comics um, community here is so big. You know, like, Matt Kent is from here. Brian Hurt is from here. Um Jason Aaron is like four hours from here. Chris Sammy also a few hours from here. You know, I'm here. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a whole publisher in St. Louis. So there's that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Lion Forge is here. Um, my husband is a manager at a comic shop. So like, you know, the the comic book shop community here is is thriving. <laughs> We're doing good here. That that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I have to say, and, and this is also, oh, oh, no, no. I was saying that there's um, a, another group here also called Ink and Drink Comics, which is a, a local group. And this is actually where I first got my start doing printed comics. Um, I had just started working at, at uh, Star Clipper and I expressed interest in drawing comics. And one of the other, uh, my coworkers was like, oh, well, you should get into Ink and Drink. They're just a group that meets up on like Tuesdays, like once a month. And uh, they talk about comics, they draw comics, and uh, that's pretty much it. And I was like, that's not a lot of information, but okay, I'll go with it. <laughs> uh, and so like, I went there, and it was super welcoming, you know. Uh, 
But basically what they do is they put together an anthology series based on a genre and the money that we make off of selling it at local cons and nearby cons is used to make the next book. And that's pretty much it. And it's just like a way to keep um, local creators into the idea of publishing their own stuff. You know, you learn a whole lot about formatting and uh, making sure that your, your comic is ready for print and working with an editor and working with a writer. It's like an incredible way to get started in comics and it's totally free. You just have to go to some meetings and say, hey, what's up? It's awesome. So this isn't so much a question as an observation, um, but I thought it was reading about, you know, the, the Dan sent me the M&T article and I read it and it was really cool. Um, and the idea of getting LGBTQ uh, comics into libraries, one of the coolest tiers I've ever contributed to on a Kickstarter was for uh, an LGBTQ supervillain comic called Gamer Girl and Vixen, where one of the tiers, the tier I wound up contributing at was you got a copy for yourself, a copy for your friend, and a copy for your local library. And it was just such a neat idea, and it's something that I would love to see more Kickstarters sort of, you know, have that, you know, hey, send a copy to your library. It's, it was just such a novel idea that I, I hadn't, I was surprised I hadn't seen it before. It's like super easy too. And Ivy and I worked at vastly different libraries. So like hers, her whole library was like the size of the room that I worked in. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's wild. So like for me, I can't just take a book and say, let's put this into the uh, circulation because there's a whole system that goes into it. And uh, it's a lot. <laughs> but I worked at like the main library in reference. So there was a lot of hoops you had to go through. So you can imagine how much work it was putting an entire zine collection in there. So when people say, oh, just donate to your library, I think most of the time they're talking about smaller branches. Because uh, like the one that Ivy worked at, you could hand someone a hoagie and it's in the collection. I mean, like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 because I took over the collection development in my power grab. And I did not allow I did not allow hoagies to be added to it. I I was the world's most annoying librarian, I think, to people who had an expectation of what librarians should be, because I was always being like, let's get less books in here. Knock out these shelves. We need more community space. We need meeting rooms. We need places for people to tutor each other. So when people would try to donate, I would often be like, mm -mm, get it out of here. <laughs> But that's typically because when people want to donate something to their library, what they mean is that they cleaned out their house and they have a bunch of really old James Patterson paperbacks and they think you should probably take them. Uh, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah. another thing that, I mean, this comes from many years of working in a comic shop as well. Not everything that you own is worth something. <laughs> like, when it comes to comics, like, don't give me your 90s X-Men because no one wants them. Um, but, like, when it comes to, like, a library, though, libraries aren't museums, you know? Like, we can't just take everything and put it on a shelf. They're meant to be used and circulated and refreshed, you know? So if you're giving me something that's, like, old as shit and no one cares about it anymore and it's just, like, a testament to why racism is good or something, you know, that's not going to go in the library, you know? <laughs> 
See, I'm laughing because I think I pretty much got a donation of a big weird box of books that was essentially a testament to why racism is good yeah. once. And I had to be like, no. Um, my favorite story ever about this is a woman who brought me a paper bag full of just destroyed romance novels, like just so well read, like falling apart. And she turned, she gave it to me and she said, I thought you guys could use these for the kids' summer reading. And I was like... It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, sometimes there are things that you never know a library will need more of, you know? Yes. Like, there was one year where someone came in and they're like, I'm building an organ. And I was like, like a piano? And they're like, yeah, I'm building one. Do you have a book about it? And I was like, oh, I don't know, let me see. And I go up and yes, we do. We have a two book series that are very heavy and I wasn't very strong at the time. So <laughs> I was like letting this thing down from the stacks. I was like, there you go. Enjoy your book on how to build an organ. And no lie, like a week later, someone else came in and was like, I'm building an organ. What? <laughs> and I was like, what? How? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And I was like, I'm sorry. I gave the book away already. So sometimes your old books are necessary. <laughs> and I think with comics, it, you know, it does... I definitely treated it a little different because even if it was something that I wasn't going to add to the collection, either because we already owned it or it wasn't in great shape or like, uh, you know, it was going to take up room and probably not circulate that often. I would hold on to those things for like prizes, uh, for reading groups, you know, uh, giving somebody a comic as a prize I learned was like, got the best reaction out of like teenagers because again, they don't, always acknowledge comic shops as a place that exists right so if you're giving them a comic it's like oh man where'd you get this mars like it... <laughs> i mean i remember when i was in my reading program and those are the books that i picked up as like prizes for having read over like what 60 hours or something like if there was a comic in that closet i was grabbing it because all that was left were like fucking kazoos or something you know like <laughs> random items oh kids would love this no give me batman the long halloween <laughs> Ooh, that's a good prize yeah i mean god do you, were there any comics in the library back in our day dan when we would spend our time at the library i mean you worked there so you would know better than me but um i, I certainly don't it. recall them <laughs> and you worked in the yeah, children's I section too <laughs> i did god i okay. was so when I was, you know, uh, 10 and I was at my library, so what, uh, how many years ago? Almost 20 years ago. I feel like I read all of the comics that we had in that library. And I understand that that was a, a branch library, so it was relatively small. Um, but I also, like, read books that were outside of the kids section as well. So I was looking for more comics, and I feel like I read a good deal of them. But nowadays, oh my gosh, like, if I go to St. Louis Public Library where I used to work, like, entire section. Oh, I mean, oh. it's incredible. Oh, yeah, I was all pleased that I'm, you know, get, giving this graphic novel to the library. And they went, and I went, to, I went into the, the library outside of the audiobooks, which is where I go because of my ungodly commute. And I was like, oh, wow, my one little graphic novel isn't even going to get noticed. This is a marvelous section. Sadly, I own most of this, but it's really cool that it's all here. Yeah. 
So, uh, Ivy, uh, kind of getting back to uh, Philly a little bit, uh, do you have a, a home base shop in town? I do. Uh, I go to Brave New Worlds in Old City. They are fantastic. Um, I was very nervous. So I worked in a comic book store um, for a while. And uh, when you work in a comic book store, you start to get really, really high, weird standards about other comic book stores. (laughs) You are preaching to the choir. (laughs) And so I was like, well, I had been reading comics digitally between leaving my store and um, finding Brave New Worlds. And so when I started working, I work at Cork Books, um, which is a publisher in Philly. Um, when I started working there and realized there's a comic book store around the corner, I was like, oh, fantastic. I will go there and open up a pull list. And then the day I decided to do it, I was like, what if this place is horrible? What if everyone who works here is horrible? Like, I had all this anxiety. But no, the guys that work there are great. They have really good selection. They represent a lot of the, like, um, indie scene in Philly. Like, they stock a lot of zines and independently published things, which I really appreciate. Um, like, I've, I've loved going there. It's made me feel like I have a, a comic book store community again um, in some ways, which I was really missing when I left comic book retail. Mm. You, I, I worked in one shop for 15 years, and when I finally had to leave... I, I my current shop is fine, but I I still miss all my old friends and customers. And every now and then, we'll take the two hours to travel up for an event because I miss I I know you're I know exactly what you mean. And Brave New Worlds is real nice. I used to work as an affiliate with the Painted Bride, which is right around there too, and or was. And so it's like I remember stumbling in there one day. It's like wow, if I only lived a little closer to here. Yeah, no, they're a really nice shop, um, and they're in uh, that M. Night Shyamalan superhero mashup movie. They shot some scenes in there, so you can actually see them all over the country right now, which I think is really cool. <laughs> oh, wow. I, you know, I was, I was trying to, like, I was naming, I was, like, listing all the comic shops I know in Philly, and that was not one of them, so I definitely need to check them out. You know, I've been to Amalgam quite a few times. I love it there. And, um, you know, went to Fat Jack's, went to Ontario Street once, and... That place worries me. <laughs> it just—it just looks like it's located in a place where you know people meet to uh, plan crimes. <laughs> uh, Steens and I went up to Amalgam not long after they opened, actually, but I haven't gotten a chance to get back up there. I'm just like never that way. Hey, my—I I go out there. My wife works not too far from there, so I'm—it's—they—they they make a mean iced tea too. No, I really love that they exist. You know, even if I'm not able to go there as often as I would like, I think that it's great that they're there and that they're so neighborhoody and that they offer so much to the neighborhood around them. You know, Philly's comic scene, as I'm sure you know, is kind of weird um, because we don't really have a show. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of smaller groups that do things, but there's no like big uniting thing. Right. There's um, Wizard World, which is like, you know, an autograph, mostly an autograph farm. And then they tried with Keystone last year. And I was at Keystone. <laughs> so so were we. I, I don't know. We went on Sunday. So it was the last day. There's always a different vibe on that day. But it was probably the same vibe. The whole OK, time. <laughs> that's kind of what I heard. It, it, it very much felt like what if what if they threw a con and no one came? 
was, you know, I want to believe that Keystone will take off because I want Philly to have a show. And, you know, I really miss the Locust Moon Festival that used to happen at the Rotunda in West Philly. Um, I thought that was a, a great show. And then to see it kind of fall away. I think there's been some things that have kind of stepped up to try to replace it, like zine fests and stuff. But, you know, I'd like to see something that kind of brings... Philly has, like, a really interesting dynamic with like really really indie stuff that's going on and like a pretty big like mainstream readership too from what i can tell so something that like united the two of them would be amazing i'd love it have you ever crossed the border into jersey for uh the camden show at rutgers no i did i i got invited to speak at one of the rutgers shows in new brunswick i was oh new brunswick yeah, no, I mean, it's coming up at the end of April. It's free for everyone, and it's it's a nice little con. I, I've really enjoyed it the number of years that I've been. Yeah, and I've it, heard it's and, good. Yeah. No, I'm glad. And that's another one that's like, you know, very community-oriented and neighborhoody, and I think that's that's nice to see. And also, we're hosting a panel there, so good job plugging Matt. <laughs> well, I, I was waiting for you to actually drop the bomb on that one, so. <laughs> uh, it'll it'll be in the intro, which I haven't recorded yet, so you know, ah. time's a flat circle. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Steens, you've been in your current role as uh, an associate editor at uh, Lineforge for a little over a year now. Uh, you know, one thing I love that that publisher does is how well they break their lines down by age group. So for example, you know, the Roar line for teens and, and uh, Caracol for uh, middle grade and, and Clubhouse for eight and younger, um, that feels like a very like library influenced, you know, move as we're kind of talking, you know, talking about all that stuff. It is. I mean, we definitely did it intentionally just because we do want to make sure we have a big foot in the book market. Mm -hmm. And that's something that just you have to know in the book market is who is this book for, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think personally, I think it, it would be really nice to have that uh, crossover into the comics community as well, only because so many people are already reading novels and chapter books that when they come into a comic shop and they're looking for something by age range, it's kind of hard for a comics retailer to tell them because different publishers have different rating systems and, you know, something may say teen, but it may definitely not be teen, you right. know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the only reason I think about it is because out of like ease for people who like don't want to just read anything. Um, I mean, I also feel like you should just let your kid read, for the most part, what they want to read. Mm -hmm. But also, I know that, you know, if you're specifically looking for, like, I'm looking for a book for ages eight and younger, uh, younger um, you kind of have to have read the majority of your stock to have an idea of what actually works. But if you had a system that had, like, a logo and a color, this is for this age range, that would just make things a little bit easier, which is why it works so well in, you know, in the book market and in libraries and bookstores and the education uh, community as well. But it definitely works out for us. And it's kind of hard to get out of that mindset now that I've been doing it for so long. Cause you know, I was in marketing with Lion Forge when I first started. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my mindset is always like, well, who am I selling this book to? Um, which 
helps as an editor because it kind of colors every single thing that you do in the book. You know, if someone's like, I have a story for a middle grade reader, you kind of have to think about, well, is the dialogue something that a middle grade reader is looking to, or is it too simple or is it too advanced? Is it about, you know, the trials and tribulations of growing up or is it about learning, um, a lesson, because if it's about learning a lesson, that might be a little bit too young. And so having an idea of who the book is for definitely helps when it comes to editorial direction as well. Yeah. And, I, and I think just on the whole, we're, we're starting, you know, the rest of the industry is starting to kind of creep in, you know, understand that like book market mentality. You know, I'm kind of, I'm interested to see what happens with, with the DC Ink and Zoom line. Uh, and all that stuff, but um, yeah, it's very interesting. I know Ivy and I both got to see the DC Inc. Uh, books. Um, neither of us were at Con Expo, but we had people that were there, so we got to see them. But um, I mean, I think it's very interesting. I'm kind of confused as, as what their goal is because yeah. I don't know. But so the books are good on their own, mm-hmm. but. I do not know if someone's going to like read one of those books and think, now let me move over to Catwoman comics from my local comic store because they're not the same. They're not the same people. They're not the same backstories. They're not the same anything. And they're the same in name only. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works out fine, you know, if it's just a mantle. But I don't know if that has been clarified if it is just a mantle and that's what these stories are. And then I wonder if the people who are there for the novelist are going to say, wow, I love this novelist. Now let me go and read some comics at my local comic book store. I don't know. (laughs) So it's like, what exactly are you trying to do? Because when I was working at a comic store, my main problem was that there was nothing for, uh, superhero comic readers that were older than seven but younger than 16 and people would come in and be like i want to read a story about like batman and i had to either give them batman counts to 10 or the killing joke the killing joke yeah exactly (laughs) meanwhile you know you have a hero like spider-man who you can give that book to any age range, depending on. Um, but it's not so easy with, with DC Comics. So I I wish there was something like that. Um, I mean, they have Teen Titans, which is great. But Teen Titans comes in and out all the time, you know. And Teen Titans was one of the, the my favorite comics when I was growing up. So I don't know. There are some that that they have and some that they don't. And I'm interested to see if these books fill a hole that they believe it will fill. Mm-hmm. It's definitely an interesting uh, growing pains phase, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, I was also very excited to hear last year about uh, Gail Simone uh, coming on and, and kind of working with the Catalyst Prime line. Uh, have you had you know much chance to, to interact with her at all? Yeah, yeah, it's great. She's awesome. Um, it's kind of weird to like think about it now because, you know, when I was 
younger, I was like, wow, stars in my eyes, Gail Simone. But now I can just like email her <laughs> and be like, oh, well, what's up? <laughs> you know? Like I'm working with her on comics. I'm like talking about which writers would be best for which character and what do they think of this script that I just got and how does it cross over with the scripts that she's working on, you know? So we, all of the Catalyst Prime editors do work rather closely together, um, mostly because it is a shared universe and we want to make sure that um, everything lines up pretty well. But thankfully, we actually have uh, Desiree Rodriguez, who is the Catalyst Prime uh, coordinator, and pretty much if I have a question about anything in the Catalyst Prime universe, I can ask her and she will know the answer. It's kind of like having a Catalyst Prime Wikipedia that is available all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and is super nice and super knowledgeable. She's like super on the ball when it comes to, um, you know, character design and making sure that people's costumes are all the same color across books. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And so it's cool that Gail and, and Des work so closely together, um, especially because Gail's prime directive is to make the Catalyst Prime Universe more connected and stronger because um, we got off on a bad start. <laughs> So uh, it's exciting to see that a lot of our titles are finally turning around. Like Kino uh, is written by Alex Pecknadel. Holy mm -hmm. fuck. That book is so good. I mean, the book was cool when it started, but it was very formulaic, uh, episodic even, um, where I don't think a whole lot changed issue to issue. But now it's like, on a completely different level and incredible it's like so near and dear to my heart I know it's because I'm editing it but also I feel like if I were in that age range of 7 to 16 and I was looking for a superhero comic this would be one that I would read it's so honest and, and real and being able to work with creators that have that kind of freedom to do so is nice. You know, when you're working with DC or Marvel comic, you have 70 years or so of back history that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to worry about what Batman's personality is because it's over and done with. So DC and Marvel stories are very, very plot heavy because we know who these people are. So it's cool that we're able to focus on character with this. And I think Gail definitely understands that uh, with the project she's starting within the universe that it is a whole, it's very much focused on character, which is something that I really like a lot. Um, that's something that both Ivy and I really focus on when we write and illustrate stories together is that they're stories about people and obviously the plot is very important, <laughs> but I think who these people are, how they react to things, how they hold themselves, how they look at people, like that's, that's a part of it that is more important to me because I think it comes across uh, to the reader a lot stronger when you do it right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, we actually had uh, Alex a couple uh, uh, on the show a couple of months ago and you know, talking oh, about Kino. Yeah. Botched his last name. How do you say it? 
Pecknadel, apparently. Oh my god, I was really close. Great. <laughs> I, I I asked him before we went on bike because I had the same question. Good idea. Like I've like been in the same room with him, and I'm like, do it. Just ask him. How do you say it? <laughs> oh man. Um, so we always do, you know, a little, a little bit of light, uh, you know, tw Twitter stalking of our, our guests. Uh, Steens, I just wanted to tell you that uh, I appreciated it when uh, you said, I think it was like yesterday, maybe, uh, that you keep a pro Cyclops house. Oh, yes. <laughs> she does this to spite me. <laughs> it's true. That's like, there are some things that like Ivy and I just don't talk about because we just don't agree on it. It's like Cyclops and anime. We just cannot seem to agree. And that's okay because we don't talk about it. <laughs> but, Politics, yeah. religion, and Cyclops. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are incredibly pro Cyclops here. <laughs> yeah. And the worst is that my own partner of five years is also pro Cyclops, and I am alone. I am alone on a rock in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> okay. So let, let me let me ask you this, Ivy. Um, does this mean, you know, are you specifically anti-Cyclops? Are you just, are, you know, are, are you pro, uh, you know, Wolverine, for example, or, or just, you know? I just find Cyclops to be so pedantic. I don't know. He's just like... <laughs> Look, and Steens can tell you that the very good boy characters are my favorite characters. Mm -hmm. yeah, Lo love a good boy. She's heavily, heavily Gryffindor. Love a good boy. <laughs> Look, Cap, Cap has been Cap has been near and dear to me for a long time, but Cyclops is the wrong kind of good boy. I don't. It's just like you can't be like a, a Boy Scout and be so condescending to everybody all the time, Scott. You know, <laughs> he sees things in very black and white. Uh, he sees them in red, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I can definitely, uh, I'm the same way. <laughs> no, I just like, I, it's just been, and maybe it is because my mom was very like pro Wolverine. Mm -hmm. Like we had a Wolverine telephone in our house growing up. Like he held the receiver in his claws and that is amazing. I think that she just like imbued me with the anti-cyclops like conditioning <laughs> from a young age. I think uh I think mine actually comes from my parents as well. I don't think my parents were ever like pro cyclops, but they're definitely very militant in their views. And so I am very militant. <laughs> and <laughs> it's either my way or the highway and Cyclops is the same way. <laughs> My God, this is really accurate. <laughs> See, I myself am more of a Wolverine in that I am short and kind of belligerent. <laughs> I cry when it's not appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Very accurate. I sometimes lie in bed and just stroke a framed photo. <laughs> yeah. Man. yeah. I actually, I have a framed photo of Ivy in my house, and it's the only framed photo of any human in my house. It looks like I, I died. I don't even have pictures of my family. I just have one photo. <laughs> but it was because uh, I had my book release at Star Clipper, my local shop that my husband is a manager of. And I, mean, I was, have been there, 
So I was like, well, I didn't make this book on my own. So I printed out a, a picture of her, put it in a frame, and I said, write something nice to Ivy on a giant poster board. And I did not realize how much it made it look like she had died. It looked and like so- I died. <laughs> Uh, I had to like tell people she was very much alive. She's just in Philly. <laughs> when I went to St- I went to Steen's house this summer for her wedding, and I walked into her office, and she had the framed photo of me on a shelf next to some white roses, and I was like, "Did I die?" <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was my wedding bouquet, so <laughs> I didn't just have roses. Okay. It really looked like I died. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, what are you, what are you guys both reading right now? Oh gosh! So I actually just finished a book, which is really impressive for me. So uh, my my stack of to read is real bad. Uh huh. But I finally over the weekend was just like, fuck it, I'm reading a book. No one talked to me. Um, so I actually read Bloom by uh, Savannah uh, Ganusho and Kevin Panetta. Mm-hmm. And it was very sweet. I don't know if you have ever read fan fiction, but the feeling you get in like chapter seven when they finally like realize that they like each other and they get close and they're about to kiss and your face is just like hot and you're like oh my god it's finally happening I've been reading this fan fiction for so many days or hours uh, and it's finally happening that like well of emotion was that whole book (laughs) so very very good uh, excellent art. I love Savannah's work so much so that I hired them for a project that I'm working on. Nice. So, yeah. That's what I got. Blue. Uh, I am going to mess up your show. I'm also reading Bloom. No <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. So I bought it um, and then... I'm a book publicist uh, at Quirk, and so I have to read all of our new titles um, that are coming out in the summer and fall. So I bought it, and then I had to read a bunch for work, and I was like, I'll get to this, and I just finally am getting to it. So that's what I'm reading. I can't believe it. This synergy is so real. Strong synergy. (laughs) Uh, well, guys, uh, it's it's been an hour. Uh, as we're as we're wrapping up, how can people follow you uh, online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Uh, I do wish to be followed online. Uh, I am at oh hey Steens. That's O H E Y Steens. Uh, everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, wherever. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I am the same handle on everything, and it's my name. <laughs> um, so it's Ivy Noel, I-V-Y-N-O-E-L-L-E. You can find me on, on everything under that name. Thankfully, I have a weird first name. <laughs> and middle name. Yes, combo, combo name. <laughs> 
All right, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site, and $2 gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plano views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.